0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson.
1: And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang.
0: In podcast 47, we'll be focusing on young farmers and rural youth. In particular, this is all about how to engage young people in agriculture to enhance productivity and empower individuals with a voice, agency and the ability to make decisions. We'll be talking to IFAD's youth expert, Raul Antao, about the challenges rural youth are facing under the current economic climate and how the systems-based approach that projects are adopting is assisting them in addressing these issues head on
1: next we'll be hearing from molly brennan about the decent work for equitable livelihoods coalition it aims to accelerate substantial increase of impactful actions by stakeholders across food systems aligned for a collective impact on the livelihoods of food systems workers
0: active involvement is another key aspect when empowering our young farmers We'll be talking to IFAD's Federica Emma about the effects the grassroots approach has on projects.
1: And following that, we'll have Jenna Tesdal, the Director of Young Professionals for Agricultural Development, guiding us through the opportunities that food systems present for young farmers.
0: Moving on to Jaren Porcello, who is a co-director of He's at 2030, a global partnership working towards sustainable and nutritious solutions to end hunger.
1: Jaren, also an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame, specializes in artificial intelligence and will be discussing the future of AI in food systems.
0: Also coming up, we meet with the latest Recipes for Change chef, Chef Colonna, from his home in Labico, Rome. He's made a transition from being a gourmet chef to becoming a farmer chef. And now he's promoting the work of IFAD around sustainable food systems.
1: And to end this episode, we hear from the Agricultural Research for Development Unit, also known as AR4D. They're an IFAD team dedicated to bringing agricultural research from the lab to the field.
0: Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. Coming up, time to start talking youth. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Here at IFAD, we've been asking ourselves how do we prepare rural young people to move into adulthood in a sustainable and secure way?
1: It's all about building around the ideas of making them more productive, fostering connectivity, and empowering them with a voice, agency, and decision making power. Our reporter, Rosa Gonzalez, asked IFAD's Rahu and Tao whether the situation for rural youth was getting tougher or any easier.
2: We had a report come out uh, last year by the ILO which periodically repeats our reports on youth employment and the status of youth employment. And it's clear from that report that actually the effects of COVID have really had kind of profound impact on young people in a number of ways and not necessarily for the better. And the first thing that's happened is that, you know, the pandemic has obviously led to a lot of schools being shut down as well and a lot of, let's say, remote learning that sort of started to take off. So education took a real hit. And as a result, it pushed the number of young people as well that fall in an indicator that we carefully track, which is the indicator for young people not in education or employment, or training. It's an indicator called NEAT. So it pushed the NEAT level really high, and this is a really concerning indicator because it really shows, you know, the social exclusion. And the second thing that we saw is because, you know, there were so many disruptions to supply chains that even a lot of rural young agribusinesses really took the brunt and the blow also of those disruptions and in many cases also had to shut down a lot of their own micro enterprises. The employment deficit went up in comparison to their adult counterparts. You know, there's an argument that's made where it's easier to let go of uh, people you've recently recruited rather than the ones who've been there for a long time. If countries were to gear shift their policies, particularly taking into consideration green economies, orange economies, blue economies and the care economy, We could have a real transition shift into opening up a lot more employment opportunities for young people. I'm talking about millions of jobs.
3: How is the systems-based approach that projects are adopting helping rural youth?
2: The idea is really to work collectively with all these actors, including from the public sector and the private sector, Everyone needs to be on board if we are going to look at uh, sort of youth employment. So as much as we might want to like, focus on skills development, the idea is really to engage in partnership development in finding and seeing what might be the incentives we can bring to companies themselves for them to sort of uh, make sure that young people have a higher chance of being employed So here's really the systems-based approach. It's really how do we engage with an enabling environment? How do we engage with what we're now calling an ecosystem-based approach?
3: And what would you say are some of the other main lessons learnt under the current economic climate?
2: It's becoming more and more important for us to get our hands on a decent amount of data to better inform us, not just in terms of how sturdy our interventions are and what kind of attribution or contribution for that matter, but it also gives us a chance to then sort of influence policy. I think it's also becoming really evident that we need to put in a lot more effort to be inclusive when it comes to rural youth, because too often they are sort of lumped up into just the idea of rural youth, but actually they are a very heterogeneous group. And so we are talking about differences that a rural young woman would face versus a rural young man would be completely different experiences. And sometimes the deviation between the two can be enough to suggest that we really need to look at approaches that you know are tailored in some ways. And that's, you know, gender is just one. There are indigenous peoples, uh, rural young people with disabilities. So you really need to sort of intercompass everything and look at the intersectionality. And I think one of the last points I just want to make is on this uh, regard of like decision making and and giving young people a sense of voice and agency. Yes, by Ifad's doing something pretty incredible because what we are trying to do is really build on IFAD's work on Indigenous Peoples and the Forum and the Farmers Forum. So we're really trying to get young voices into IFAD's decision-making processes and into its management and governance processes. But at an operational level, all the way on, some of the things that we are piloting now is to really look at how we can convene young people and what opportunities do we have within our own existing infrastructures that we can sort of take advantage of to aggregate the voices of young people and to feed back into operations themselves so that there's some sort of stakeholder feedback loop, which don't just like limit themselves to consultations, but actually have some sort of meaningful impact.
3: So are you optimistic about the future?
2: I think so. Uh, I think so. I think there are so many lessons that we've learned, and perhaps some of the principal lessons that we've learned is that we need to focus a lot more on resilience. And so in some ways, the, the question really becomes, well, how do we become more resilient as communities and as individuals? And I think when it comes to young people, there is a really good case to even suggest that there's more awareness perhaps amongst them also to sort of you know, shape their own sort of future in a very resilient way.
0: Thanks to Raoul. Building upon these key points to foster resilience amongst rural youth worldwide, IFAD has been at the forefront, spearheading various initiatives to create opportunities and enhance livelihoods. We'll be hearing about those next.
1: You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. The Decent Work for Equitable Livelihoods Coalition is pivotal in addressing the challenges faced by young people in rural areas.
0: To shed more light on these endeavours, we would like to welcome our next guest, Molly Brennan, who is an integral part of IFAD's youth team and also serves as the focal point for this crucial coalition.
1: The Decent Work Coalition, co-hosted by IFAD, ILO and CARE International, aims to amplify actions across food systems, fostering economic justice, decent work, and access to nutritious food for all. Our reporter, Noah Bona, spoke with Molly. So
4: food system workers play a really critical role in feeding the world. However, most of them regularly face high levels of working poverty, chronic food insecurity, or health and safety conditions. Um, and also, like a lack of labour and social protection. And in many countries, they're experiencing the highest incidence of poverty uh, and struggling to, to feed themselves and their families. The Decent Work Equitable Food Systems Coalition is committed to improving this and working towards a goal of ensuring economic and social justice and the right to adequate and nutritious food for all food systems workers. So, the coalition is co hosted by EFAD, CARE, and ILO. And we basically aim to kind of build on the collective mandates of all these three organizations make faster progress. And I'll just maybe highlight a few of the issues we're focusing on. So uh, the first around promoting labor and human rights. The second around acknowledging the role of increasing opportunities in the agri-food sector. um, And also looking at how we achieve living incomes and wages.
3: Thank you. And how does the lack of decent work opportunities
4: in the food system sector impact rural communities more broadly? So, two-thirds of the world's hungry, and four out of five people who are below the poverty line live in rural areas. Uh, The majority of these are reliant on agriculture to support themselves and their family's livelihoods. And 90% of employment um, in agriculture is informal. So given the multiple vulnerabilities that rural communities face, they are very susceptible to, you know, the lack of decent work, um, poor conditions, lack of social protection. And so it's these communities that really can benefit the most from action on these areas. And that's where IFAD and the coalition tries to come in in helping the small-scale farmers, fishers and herders earn and produce more while improving their working conditions. There's a huge impact that can be made in terms of agricultural development and moving people out of extreme poverty in this area. Now, maybe just give you, let me give a couple of like practical examples. So there's a number of opportunities here that we sort of work on at EFAD and within the coalition more generally. So, you know, simple changes in terms of introducing basic machinery, and this can have a huge impact on freeing up time and energy to focus on other things that matter. And the second is around political and economic clout that small-scale farmers often lack. So helping these small-scale farmers mobilize and come together as members of organizations, they can then kind of work together and work with larger buyers and secure more reliable orders. And what
3: are some success stories or best practices that the coalition has seen when it comes to creating decent work opportunities for young people in the food system
4: sector? Yes, thanks. So youth are one of the main focuses of the coalition, along with other demographics that face multiple vulnerabilities. From the the youth perspective, there's various different economic challenges which give youth little option but to move to cities or even other countries to look for more work. But with the right skills, investment, and young people can find work along the value chains and kind of break this cycle. EFAD's Agribusiness Programme, which ILO also provides technical support on, is a really good example of this and how we try and break down those barriers around lack of knowledge and policy dialogue and access to resources. EFAD's Agribusiness Programme has kind of two main pathways. So it works for both wage employment and self-employment with a focus on kind of providing decent jobs for youth as an outcome. And so I think that's a really exciting um, programme, which has already shown really great results.
3: And finally, what role can youth-led organisations play in
4: promoting decent work for young people in rural areas? So youth-led organisations can have a really important role in building agency and kind of aggregating young voices to make sure that they're heard in policy and any sort of development that goes on around agri-food systems. Through kind of E5's grassroots approach, we have learned that building capacity, pooling ideas and working with community members to facilitate exchanges really does allow an integrative grassroots approach which can mobilize various different people who quite often would be left out of these sorts of dialogues. And so using youth-led organizations to bring those voices to the forefront is really important.
1: That was Molly Brennan talking to our reporter, Noah Bona. You can find out more about The Decent Work by going to www.decentworkingfoodsystems.asoneword.org.
0: Next up, we talk about the grassroots approach and how we empower youth through their active involvement in the development of agricultural and rural programs. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Our reporter, Noor Bonner, spoke to IFAD's Federica Emma about the benefits of engaging youth in the design, implementation and monitoring of agricultural and development programs.
1: She started off by asking Federica about the grassroots approach adopted by the Rural Youth Alliance and how it effectively empowers young individuals
5: residing in rural communities. The IFAD Youth Grassroots Approach that was launched in 2020 is an innovative way of engaging youth in a more structured manner as key partners in implementing field operations and in governance processes. It mobilizes scattered youth voices and facilitates the aggregation of grassroots youth groups and individual young people to channel their ideas to inform design and delivery of investment projects on the ground. It also sizes opportunity to advocate for the youth agenda at the regional and global level. The approach organises youth organisations into alliances to empower them as do good force for rural transformation. And IFAD supports the youth alliances to enhance their leadership, advocacy, technical, and management skills. In fact, becoming familiar with IFAD working modalities, structures, delivery models, and key corporate objectives and strategies put them in the position to share messages that are more powerful. This is also fostering relationships built on mutual understanding, nurturing trust and confidence in such initiatives, and above all, the sense of ownership.
3: How does the lack of youth participation and empowerment impact rural communities more broadly and what are the potential benefits of engaging youth constituencies in the design, implementation and monitoring of agricultural and rural development programs, both in terms of program
5: outcomes and broader social and economic development goals. So young people, and especially rural young people, rapidly change their mindset and lifestyles as territories diversify and integrate into your value chains, making it more difficult for those in authority to adequately understand youth. Moreover, youth population is very diverse and its members face different challenges and opportunities depending on where they are situated along the rural urban continuum. They are the ones who can offer a unique perspectives of context-specific issues that matter to them, as well has proposed strategies best suited to addressing these issues. During the regional consultations that IFAD organized, young leaders highlighted the relevance of ownership of any engagement frameworks at national, regional, and global level, particularly with regards uh, to sizing employment opportunity in agribusiness and contributing to the resilience of their communities. Therefore, it clearly emerged that if the pressing need is to create decent jobs, within the framework of a system-wide inclusive transformation of rural settings, then young rural women and men need to be taken on board. They need to be empowered to speak for themselves, allowed to bring in their own experiences of what rural development should look like, to identify key barriers to participation and how this affects their unique vulnerabilities, avoiding to take actions on their behalf. Yet, young people often lack the channels to influence the decision-making that affect their lives and are generally excluded from governance process at the levels. This calls for a critical change in traditional engagement models in order to produce more relevant pro-youth interventions while empowering youth to take ownership in community and national development. And this is precisely why IFAD is investing in the youth grassroots approach to facilitate a permanent dialogue and exchange rooted on the ground level by creating a more institutionalized youth-specific mechanism that is increasing the quality and level of youth participation in IFAD programs and the delivery process and policy dialogue by means of coordination and discussion.
3: And how can young people effectively engage in grassroots initiatives and drive change in their communities?
5: So within the framework of the uh, youth grassroots approach, um, Rural Youth Alliances have worked to achieve different objectives. So first of all, they mobilize and aggregate youth at the grassroots level. They also engage at country level with IFAD project staff and country teams and also other actors in their own communities with an emphasis on the grassroots. Youth priorities and knowledge derived from IFAD operations on the ground complement regional and global learning and advocacy processes. At the regional and global level, several engagement opportunities have been leveraged. For instance, in 2022, they participated to the Open Consultation Forum for IFAD-running President Candidates, and then they also took an active role in IFAD Governing Council, the Global Land Forum, and the Global Land Youth Forum, organized by IRC. And more recently, they've also been um, consulted within the framework of IFAD-13 replenishment. So these occasions provided them with an important avenue to voice their challenges, as well as with an opportunity to engage in policy dialogues, showcase their work and build partnerships with both their peers and international organizations.
3: And finally, what are some successful examples of governments and IFAD working together to engage youth constituency in the design and implementation of agricultural and rural development programs and what lessons can be learned from these experiences?
5: So there are several examples in the region of like partnerships established with youth and youth organizations at project level. One of the examples I can provide is, for instance, the participation of the Rural Youth Alliance in Colombia in the design of a new IFAD-funded project that intends to reduce poverty among the target population in the framework of the peace process, social cohesion, and renew confidence in Colombia. The next step is to embark into a more institutionalized mode of engagement with youth with formal instruments through which channeling the demands and aspirations of rural youth. Otherwise, the risk is that actions are likely to remain scattered and incoherent, resulting in a fragmented coverage. Participation might therefore be perceived as a process to use occasionally to stimulate their interests and to prepare them for the delivery of youth-sensitive services and output with the risk of being misinterpreted as tokenism. This is a big lesson learned that IFAD is taking on board, and this is why, within the framework of the rural youth grassroots approach, rural youth are really becoming important actors in the sustainable transformation of food systems. However, they still need to be empowered and enabled to be part of decision-making processes, and they need the support and resources to be agents of change in their communities and at all levels. IFAD is providing increased support to young people and is increasing the the count of young people around the table and, more importantly, making their voice
0: count. That was Federica Emma talking to our reporter, Noah Bonner. Coming up, we'll be talking about opportunities for youth in the food system sector. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. Now, we'd like to introduce our next guest... Director of Young Professionals for Agricultural Development, or YPARD, Jenna Tesdel.
1: She dedicated her studies to exploring youth engagement in agricultural policy at the Humboldt University of Berlin. And now her impactful work focuses on sustainable agriculture, striving for a more equitable and sustainable future for generations to come.
0: Our reporter Noor Bonner is back and she asked her about the policy changes that must occur to foster greater opportunities for young people in the food system sector.
6: When I think of policy change, of course, we're thinking about the lever of the enabling environment. I think what allows a young person to have quality opportunities in the food system is really the question when we're thinking about the enabling environment. I like to break it down into four main categories of interventions where we can support young people in food systems, and of course the four categories interact very intimately and sometimes it's even difficult to categorize one intervention into one of these categories, but I think it is helpful to think about our interventions in categoric ways. And so I named those four interventions, and one is access to resources. So access to resources would be things like finance, but also to land, to water, to infrastructure like electricity or internet or sanitation. Then the second is, of course, what everyone thinks of when they think of youth, I think, which is education and capacity building. So really building those critical skills for young people. The third is access to networks, and I think this is one that might often be overlooked when we're thinking about providing young people opportunities, because young people are interacting through peer networks, for example, to find out about opportunities, but also to ask each other maybe what feels like a silly question, you know, and to develop their knowledge in this way. But then also to connect to people who are more senior in the field, right, and then to find out about opportunities um, of what is a quality education or capacity building opportunity, or where could they get? get access to resources. And then those networks also then connect to influencing that enabling policy environment, which I think is the fourth lever that we have available to us. And so those four areas, access to resources, education and capacity building, access to networks, and enabling a policy environment, I think are really important areas where we need to see change in order to create more opportunities for young people. EFAD and the coalition can absolutely support youth with um, access to resources. We can look critically at policies which tackle all these issues in access to land, but also which promote building infrastructure and provide workers protections, of course, as well. I think this is something super important and the reason why we're super excited about the coalition is every food systems worker has the right to be safe from, for example, carcinogenic pesticides. And every child has the right to attend school and not be forced to work We can also look at policies of donor governments, the Global North, right, through the coalition and encourage them to increase standards on their companies at home. So any company which operates in the EU, for example, shouldn't be able to sell pesticides banned here in other countries, for example, and child labor shouldn't be allowed in any part of the value chain. So I think these are really exciting discussions that we can really have through the coalition.
3: What are some of the key issues and challenges that young people face in accessing decent work in rural areas and how
6: is the coalition addressing them? Decent work in rural areas especially is a huge challenge, especially for agriculture, because many young people are unemployed or those who are unemployed are often working in precarious employment conditions, right? So this could mean unreliable contracts. It could be no contract at all. So informal working conditions without labor protections, things like this. And protections like workers' safety are often difficult to guarantee then due to the precarity of these working conditions. And young workers often then don't have a good way to demand the right to safe and decent working conditions. So I think this is a very important thing that the Decent Work Coalition is really bringing to the forefront of the discussion. Something I also want to highlight is an important challenge that young professionals face in the international NGO and UN environment and also in some companies, and that is unpaid internships. And we see this being a challenge for our young members because it's often an exclusionary factor for them. Our members who are really having less income, living in rural areas, aren't able to take these unpaid internships because they just can't afford it, right? So this is a way of selecting people who can already afford it. And so personally, I would love to see us also be the change that we want to see and commit to no unpaid internships for young people as members of the coalition. And this is something that I think is also an important link to creating opportunities in rural areas that we can put in motion in our organizations right away.
3: And as part of your last words I like. How listeners can get involved and support the work that IFAD and the coalition are doing to promote decent work in the food systems sector.
6: Yes, absolutely. Listeners, if you're interested in this topic, absolutely join the coalition because we need folk who are passionate about this topic. It doesn't matter if you're an expert in labor conditions or not. If you're working in the food system sector, then this is a topic that is quite relevant to your work. And we would love to also see the coalition develop new programs, new activities together based on those who are coming into the coalition and getting excited about this work. I say also change starts within our own organizations and also talking about decent labor is a factor often overlooked. Together in the coalition, we are promoting discussion, first of all, about decent labor, which I think is a huge step in food systems. And so we're planning a series of informational events and, and thought leadership events on the topic, including, for example, at the stock take moment coming up at the end of this month.
3: And finally, how can we ensure that young people in rural communities have access to the education, training, and resources they need to succeed in the food
6: system sector? I think this goes back to my last questions, right? Every time that we are thinking about interventions, let's think about those four areas. You think about access to resource, education and capacity building, access to networks, and the enabling policy environment. That said, think of youth as other stakeholder groups, never for youth without youth. If you're really wondering what could be beneficial to youth, involve them in the development of your training programs, your education programs, the development of access to resources, because they're going to be able to tell you what they need involve diverse types of youth. If you really gather diversity of views, then you really develop effective education training programs and access to resource for young people, which is really unique to their rural communities and also involves them on that journey as well and puts them really in the driver's seat for leadership and systems change.
1: Thanks to Jenna. Make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In podcast 44, we found out what can be done to stem water scarcity in the Near East and North Africa. Then in podcast 45, we looked at the impacts and solutions for climate change on small island developing states. And in podcast 46, we heard all about the power of sending money home to help development.
0: Coming up in podcast 48 we'll be hearing about nutrition and a fascinating report on obesity in developing countries. Now, though, in podcast 47, we're introduced to our new Recipes for Change chef, Antonello Colonna. But first, we have more from the global donor platform for rural development.
1: You're listening to Farms Food Future with Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Now to welcome you to our ongoing mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD.
0: The platform brings together donors that believe the best way to tackle global poverty and hunger is to develop agriculture, reshape food systems, and invest in rural communities. Its network of 41 influential donors includes international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations and foundations.
1: Today's guest is Jaren Porciello, a co-director of HESAT 2030, a global partnership and roadmap to end hunger sustainably and nutritiously, and she's also an associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. Jaren specializes in artificial intelligence and tells Mauricio Navarro what she thinks is the future of AI in food systems.
7: Jaren. What are the issues that keep you up at night?
8: I would say inequality is probably the thing that keeps me up at night. So thinking about inequality in our food systems, our education, our health, much more broadly as well, personal health and safety. What helps me get back to sleep is when I I look around and I particularly look at my two young children, I have two daughters, and the way I see them interacting with the world, the kinds of questions that they're asking and the ways in which they just believe that equality is is an inherent right. I take a lot of inspiration and a lot of comfort when I look at the younger generation and I see how much they care about the environment, how much they care about other people. There's a lot of compassion in the world. The issues of inequality obviously manifest in AI as well. And what really gives me a lot of hope when it comes to AI is all of the conversations that are happening across different stakeholders.
7: Artificial intelligence is the hot topic these days. What could you tell us about the state of AI at the moment, the good, the bad, and the ugly?
8: Um, So it's definitely been a roller coaster the last six months. I like to joke that I actually start my day by answering emails and colleagues' questions about the great things about AI. But I end my day with those same questions where people are saying, Isn't this a doomsday prophecy? And the truth is, you know, it's really somewhere in between all of that. So let's start with the good. This has brought about phenomenal conversations between businesses, between governments, between different stakeholders, and certainly, you know, the research community. These organizations are coming together and they're having really practical conversations about things like bias in machine learning models, quality and quantity and availability and who owns the data. And there's also a lot of good conversations happening about how to regulate this technology, which I think are long overdue conversations in some ways. Large um, language models and in particular transformer models have actually been around for more than five years. I use them every day in my work. What's different about what's happening now is that there's an application for people to see how large language models work. Um, So actually, you know, this expression of AI that people are concerned about, it's really good because it brings those conversations together. But I think what conversely is not so good is that we're seeing a lot of fear and rhetoric around the language of AI. So one of the things that you might have seen is an open letter called The Future of AI that was put together by primarily business leaders that actually caused for a six month pause in the development of AI. And if you think about it, that's a little bit crazy. Because is that a measurable amount of time? How do you measure if development and progress are moving too fast? Um, And then the second part of the question here is, is this pause just to let businesses catch up to figure out how to monetize this? You know, there's also hints that uh, companies will be looking at the role of artificial intelligence to replace current human jobs. And I think the way that this is being expressed in the media is causing a lot of fear and anxiety as well.
7: With such an important and somewhat complicated conversation going on, how do you think AI could potentially change and have an impact on global food systems?
8: Agriculture was one of the first sectors to adopt AI technology, actually. If you look in terms of how remote sensing works, where data comes from, in terms of, you know, farmers who are using artificial intelligence, it's been in the pipeline for quite some time. An Easy example is tractors, that work on farmer's land are constantly collecting data as they go through and they harvest and they till and they do you know all kinds of processing. Data is coming into those systems and then AI is really helping uh, the farmer make real-time decisions on precision inputs. So AI in terms of global food systems, we've been heading there for, for quite some time. Um, what I think obviously is a little bit different in the landscape is with the introduction of any new technology, what's going to happen on um, the back end, in terms of corporate ownership. Who's actually going to own different parts of this technology, and then who's going to own different parts of the data. And in particular, the agricultural sector has a lot of lessons learned from seed technology that we can apply to thinking about how we consider ownership of of different assets. Um, And some of this information that we've learned in food systems is broadly
7: applicable and can be useful to decision-makers as they're thinking about regulations of the technology as well. Jaron, you were one of the co-directors of Ceres 2030, a unique research project that presented a real evidence-based world map calling to double food-related aid to end hunger by 2030. Now, HESAT 2030 is the next phase of this program. Could you tell us more about what HESAT 2030 is and where it aims to take us next?
8: as the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development knows very well because they've been a key stakeholder as well as a key community partner with this effort. We know that not enough is being done in agriculture if we're only looking at food security. HESA 2030 is really working from the baseline that we contributed with Series 2030 to better understand the donor share of how to increase and improve the efficiency of ODA. But now we really need to update both Many parts of the global modeling exercise, as well as the evidence, as well as the outreach with the global community to ensure that we are bringing in nutritious diets, factors of climate change, and that we're really thinking about that as a core essential goal for food security. So in HISTAP 2030, similar to the work we did in Series 2030, the community of stakeholders is really, really important to us, right? Um, what's different to what 2030 is? Um, is that we're not focused on kind of one key exercise, right? Series was organized around a global modeling effort, as well as a special publication with Nature Research. HACCP 2030 is a little bit more diffuse. We're looking to update, you know, global modeling and evidence exercises over time. And one of the, the key reasons for this is because some of our stakeholder groups, like the SDG2 Donors Roadmap Working Group, We need information faster. We do need to shorten that gap for the global knowledge uh, value chain, right? Information that comes out every three years, even if it's the best quality, may not be frequent enough.
7: Before our last question, I'm curious about what inspired you to take on this professional
9: path?
8: Something that not a lot of people know about me is that I was formerly a comedy writer and I also studied literature. Um, I started a PhD program in English literature and I quickly realized I couldn't spend Most of my professional life, actually looking at the past, what I'm really interested in is is looking at the future. At the same time, I love text, right? So my work focuses on textual analysis. You know, my career path has very much been non-traditional, but I've always been interested in what's the next question, not necessarily what's the goal. And that has taken me through now almost 20 years of getting to work in international agriculture and rural development and asking the next question.
7: If there is one message you would like our listeners to walk away with, what would it be and why?
8: Artificial intelligence is actually just intelligence, and it's human intelligence. So every input that goes into a model has actually originated with human ideas. You know, when we get concerned about AI, it's really helpful to think that it's not actually AI that we're so concerned with. It's what people can do with technology. And this is a problem that humanity has faced forever. What happens when technology goes too far? And fortunately, I put my faith back in human and collective intelligence. We as humans have control over what goes into the models, um, and then we also have control over how we regulate these things and the discussions that we're having with each other.
0: That was Jaron Porcello with our reporter Maurizio Navarra who's also the coordinator of the Global Donor Platform. Jaron will continue work with the Donor Platform to keep members updated on AI's impact in global food systems. And to find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, you can go to www.donorplatform.org. Coming up, we'll be talking to our newest Recipes for Change share. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Brian Thompson and Michelle Tang. Introducing our latest recipes for change, chef, Antonello Colonna. His culinary journey started by rethinking the concept of his parents' trattoria, which served as the starting point before he eventually went on to establish his own restaurant in Labico, just outside of Rome.
1: And here he has evolved from being a gourmet chef to a farmer chef. Throughout his life, he has maintained a strong connection with his territory and roots, driven by a futuristic and entrepreneurial vision that has consistently led him to turn his dreams into reality. He talked to our reporter, Noah Bona.
10: This is some advice
9: I would give to everyone. I believe it's important to remember the value of hospitality, not just for oneself, but also for promoting positive media messages. Hospitality is an art that seems to be fading in today's world. It is the foundation upon which everything revolves, and it represents the concept of continuity. Upholding high standards and continuously striving to exceed expectations is crucial. To make each experience more interesting and beautiful, like the promise of tomorrow's wine being better than yesterday's. Imagine if the opposite were true, where guests leave feeling disappointed. It may seem obvious, but in my extensive travels and visits to notable establishments, I've noticed a lack of emphasis on true hospitality. Have we, perhaps, lost touch with these fundamental principles?
3: And what role would you say, chef, Play in making food systems more sustainable and just.
9: I would argue that as ambassadors of food in a world where food culture is at times overlooked due to pervasive contamination, chefs play a central and fundamental role in upholding the highest ethical and moral principles to ensure the well being of our food systems.
3: How important is the link between the growers and the kitchen, for example, farm to table?
9: I've been pondering this question for quite some time, as it stems from my deep passion for traceability, territoriality and the concept of sourcing locally. Today, the future of a kitchen truly lies in being a field kitchen. However, it is evident that not everyone can afford this approach. In my case, my establishment is situated within a 60-hectare agricultural park. This setting allows for a more natural flow of resources. Nevertheless, I would like to extend an invitation to others to prioritize daily sourcing of raw materials, to align the menu with market offerings and to reintroduce the essence of seasons and biodiversity. This, in my opinion, is of utmost importance.
3: We know that smallholder farmers are feeding around 2 billion people in developing countries. Are you working with smaller producers here in Italy? Yes,
9: This
10: is for sempre. Yes,
9: this has been a fundamental aspect for me throughout my 38-year journey. Embracing this philosophy has become a personal manifesto. It is about celebrating and supporting small-scale producers, recognizing the individual providers with everything from meat and vegetables to eggs and fruit. Our connection with these producers continues to strengthen, and I must mention the initiatives that have emerged, such as the small farmers markets. Here in Zagarolo, thanks to the efforts of Coldiretti, we have one of these markets, which has now become an integral part of our daily food sourcing. There is a great deal of attention and appreciation directed towards these small farmers.
3: So, what are your expectations as a new Recipe for Change, Chef?
9: Food is a political act, and therefore it becomes our collective responsibility and duty to embrace such
10: initiatives.
9: Recipes for Change is precisely one of these initiatives that I personally and I believe my colleagues as well, will be delighted to participate in. It allows us to contribute and give purpose to everything that defines us, to everything happening in the world, and to the unique culinary heritage that our country represents. As food holds such fundamental importance, akin to oil, Recipe for Change
0: becomes for us a political act. Thanks to Chef Antonello Colonna. You can find out more about him at www.ifad.org forward slash recipes for change and also at www.antonellocolonna as one word.it.
1: Up next, we're going to learn about a team connecting agricultural research to development.
0: This is Farms Food Future. The Agricultural Research for Development Unit, otherwise known as AR4D, is an IFAD team working to take agricultural research out of the lab and onto the farm. AR4D's $80 million portfolio of grants supports agricultural research centres around the world.
1: The funds from the European Commission and IFAD support a wide variety of projects, from unveiling new varieties of cereals to uplifting forgotten foods, from shaping public policies to spurring private investment in agroecology.
0: To start off, our reporter Ian Smith asked AR4D's Amin Belhamisi and Vivian Felipe what agricultural research for development is and why it's important.
2: Okay.
11: In the past, agricultural research was only focused on increasing production, But increasing production has many negative side effects. And agriculture research focused only on production does not fully address farmers' issues. Agriculture research has also historically had a limited impact because in the past, farmers were not involved in the research process. So research now does not mean improving production but also improving nutrition, improving the sustainable management of natural resources, improving access to resources for women and youth, and improving market access. And all these can be done only through research and adapted research and IR 4 d agriculture research for development.
2: Okay, and then when did IFAD's AR4D unit start? And what was the motivation? What was the purpose behind it? IFAD
11: began to support Agricultural Research for Development in the 90s. And the Agricultural Research for Development Unit in IFAD was started in 2007. And as I mentioned, it was about funding regional, national, and subnational research institutions so that they could figure out how to increase production. But as the time went on, we adapted and began funding research on sustainable agriculture, on nutrition, on improving market access and on improving agriculture for women and youth specifically. Now, our program has become very important in driving agriculture research in the right way globally. So, so far, EFAD more or less invested $250 million in agriculture research to the CGIAR, and the EU, through EFAD, since the 2007, invested more or less €350 million, euros. So, our portfolio is currently around $80 and we have a number of grants which mostly go to CGIAR centers. So,
2: EFAD and the European Union have channeled over half a billion dollars through the Agricultural Research for Development unit since 2007. And now you currently have an $80 million portfolio of grants that go mostly to the CGIAR
7: centers. Okay. And... My question now is
2: do you pass along this money to these research institutions and then they create their own projects or are you more involved in the research process?
11: So the, the programs that are for d cluster manages, they are designed and implemented with other uh, units in IFAD, technical units and regions in IFAD. And the results of this program, the innovations, the, the best uh, solution, need to be scaled up under IFAD projects. So the cluster, air 4 d cluster, provides information, but also knowledge product to scale up these technologies or solutions to be implemented into IFAD projects. Within IFAD, what makes the air 4 d program unique?
12: Well, the ara program is exclusively dedicated to finance agricultural research and innovation. So essentially, there are also other sponsoring divisions that deal with uh, uh, innovative approaches and uh, sometimes also with the same partners. Uh, um, but have, I have to say that the AR4D uh, program is really at the epicenter of the EFAT strategy uh, to use agricultural research to increase yield productivity, but more importantly, to drive the modernization of rural economies and the gradual transformation of food systems through innovation and digitalization.
7: So what is one exciting project that the AR4D team is working on? And what's the goal of the project? What's so exciting about it?
11: We are currently managing two very interesting and exciting programs funded by EU. One is to develop tools and innovative solutions to transition to agroecology.
12: The uh, Agricological Transition um, Programme um, has a total budget of uh, €11.5 uh, million euro as financed by the European Commission, and it's implemented uh, by four, um, uh, four uh, implementing entities. Uh, three of these are CGR centres and one university, that is National University of Ireland, uh, Galway. What essentially the programme is about is to create the condition to induce the the actors involved to go in the direction of agroecology and uh, I believe that the exact part of this is that it's not a program focusing on the promotion of agroecological practices per se, uh, but rather an attempt to analyze possible drivers to induce a systemic shift from traditional, I mean, industrial way of producing to more agroecological production. Uh, now, uh, this is a transition, and in fact, transition is also the acronym of this program. So it's essentially looking at this transition, saying, okay, we want to embrace agroecology more and more. Uh, but, I mean, which are the drivers from a socio-economic point of view that can really push decision makers and key actors, including the private sector, for example, to embrace this change.
0: That was Amin Belhamissi and Vivian Filippi from IFAD's Agricultural Research for Development team. You can learn more about the Transitions Program and other AR4D projects by visiting ifad.org forward slash agricultural research for development.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 47. Thanks, as always, to our producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also, a big shout-out to our reporters, Noah Bona, Rosa Gonzalez, Ian Smith, and also Maurizio Navarra from the Global Donor Platform.
0: But most of all, thanks to you for listening to Episode 47 of Farm's Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts in next month's episode 48 we're talking nutrition
1: remember we want to hear from you what do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to so please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us.
0: We'll be back at the end of September with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson.
1: And from me, Michelle Tang and the team here at eFAT.
0: Thanks thanks for for listening. listening.